0: hello welcome back to the sports Bible. as you know during lockdown we have had a lot more guest podcasts and this episode today features chelsea correspondent for the athletic liam Toomey. me um, and phil and i sat down with liam uh, this afternoon and chatted to him about everything from project restart to his favorite managers that he's covered at the bridge and liam gives some great insights um, into everything behind the scenes at Chelsea and and currently what's going on in the Premier Leagues. Um, We also hear what Liam had to say on the Timo Werner rumours to Chelsea, which uh, is really interesting. So uh, without further ado, here is today's pod. Hello and welcome back to the Sports Babble. It is Thursday the 4th of June and it's Brandon here. I've got Phil with me. Hello Phil. Hello. And our guest today is Liam Toomey from The Athletic. He's a Chelsea correspondent. Liam, thank you very much for coming on.
1: No problem. My pleasure.
0: Uh, first of all, basically, um, how are you getting on? How, how's lockdown going and uh, what does it look like as a as a football journalist?
1: It's okay. It's very, very jarring not to even have sport going on in the background. You know, it's quite comforting, yeah. usually, to know that somewhere in the world there's some sort of sporting competition, even if it's not football, uh, and we've got absolutely nothing for the last two months. Um, from a professional point of view, it's been okay. It's been, I think it's probably been a little bit easier for us at The Athletic to pivot to less match-specific stuff, because we were already kind of doing a lot of that anyway yeah um kind of interviews and bigger picture pieces maybe retrospective stuff but to some extent you still need the matches happening to advance the storylines and you know generate new ones so it it'll be good to to get the games going again it's certainly getting increasingly difficult to keep coming up with ideas <laughs>
0: Yeah, no. I, I, even sort of as as being used to watching all sport and, and reading everything about sport, um, we have been keeping up the date. I know that the Athletic is basically everything we read for for our sources for all of our podcasts. So yeah, um, we've been we've been keeping up with with all your stories. Um, but basically, um, everyone's been talking about it in the last couple of days. It's it's Project Restart. We know it's. Um, Seventeenth of June is is our date to get back. We we know today that the Premier League have confirmed that um, the five substitutions is going to be happening, uh, and as well recently there in the last couple of days we know that there's just one positive test uh, coming out of Spurs um, from from the the recent uh, over a thousand one hundred and ninety seven tests done, which is which is you know quite good news. But do you think the the sort of desire for players to get back outweighs the concern that some players have or or generally what what's the feeling you're getting on that
1: well i think the desire to come back is is about preserving the football ecosystem you know the financial ecosystem keeping the cash flow going and you can you can talk about the morality of that but the the fact is that it is an industry and there are industries built around that industry as well um are at stake, really, if if football doesn't get going again. And I think players understand that. They understand their own role in that. Um, And so while you've got certain players, of course, at Chelsea, Golo Kante is probably the highest profile example of a player who has serious concerns about playing in these conditions. Um, But what's happening is a lot of conversations where the clubs and the league are trying to reassure them as much as possible and get them into a position where they, it's considered an acceptable level of risk. Now, one of the things, you know, that I think about this is that I don't think we can pretend as journalists to be impartial um, observers on this topic because I know in my industry jobs are at stake. You know yeah. that people are being furloughed, people are taking pay cuts because matches aren't happening. So. Yeah that's why that's what I mean when I say there are industries built around the industry you're talking about media you're talking about you know hospitality catering you know there's an awful lot of jobs around just the people that work specifically in football and I think that all has to be taken into account when you're talking about trying to start things up again now the practicality of it is a different challenge and it's going to be very very difficult I think the fact that the Bundesliga have managed to come back and um and get some sort of momentum again, has focused minds in the Premier League and maybe um, allayed some of the fears that some clubs had. Uh, but but primarily, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be difficult. There are going to be more positive tests. We know that. And I think the concern in the background of all of this is the situation in, in England right now, which is you have the government easing lockdown restrictions. You have a lot of scientists who are advising the government saying this might not be the smartest thing to do. Mm. Uh, And just because the premier league is not getting positive tests, that many positive tests right now, it needs to still be in that sort of position in two, three weeks time for there not to be a serious problem. So I think we can only really take things one day at a time right now. And I think that's, that's what they're doing.
0: Yeah. Uh, Just talking there about, it was interesting to hear you saying about, uh, you know, obviously from a professional standpoint. Have you been given kind of any guidance from the Premier League about, you know, w- will you be doing everything remotely? Will you be allowed to go to stadiums and interview players, things like that? Or um, will you be watching from afar?
1: Well, I think the first, the first sort of details of media protocols around these games are starting to filter out um, from the discussions that the clubs are having and it looks like there will be fairly significant limits on the numbers of of non rights holder journalists allowed each game which was expected really yeah. you know unfortunately we as much as we think we're essential we're not for a football <laughs> match to take place we're not actually <laughs> kicking the ball um and rights holders of course have paid billions um to be there so they get priority um so there will be limits on non rights holders i believe that uh, pre and post match media duties will all be done remotely and okay. there will be there will be a general a general limiting as much as possible of of you know social contact for obvious reasons and um that that will mean i'm sure no no um expansive press room buffets for the
2: for the foreseeable future it's what,
0: Stanford that, bridge. i've heard yeah Stanford bridge is yeah. is right up there and and hosting the press buffets. So you used yes. get a press
2: buffet, Liam, and then we go and do a game in the Irish League, and I get a, a cold cheeseburger. And <laughs> oh, well,
1: you know, my first experiences covering games were in the the lower leagues in England, and yeah. you get some you get some funny experiences. Um, I remember going to one ground and, and getting given two polystyrene cups, one for tea slash coffee and one for my soup, and that was you were just ha- handed two empty polystyrene cups and shown shown your way in.
2: Uh, um, it's interesting you said that about the remote because the um and, and how you're gonna handle matches and, and games when hopefully we do get up and running. Because they they released it yesterday here in Northern Ireland that if the press come back they're only gonna limit it to two media uh, people going to games. So I don't know how they're gonna work that round the thing. So it is interesting that you're gonna be doing that. Do you See on just on access, how are you finding um, with being uh, sort of in lockdown and having social distance, how, you, how have you been finding that while you're at the Athletic, getting access to players or coaches or people involved in the game? Have you found it much easier now because they can, just like what we're doing now, jump on Skype and chat to you, or how have you found it?
1: It's a mixed bag. I mean, access to players and coaches who are currently at big clubs, that's always difficult. It's yeah. always very, very difficult because there's always a lot of people wanting pieces of them obviously big clubs have their own in-house media channels which they give priority to so that has always been um something that you're 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 kind of having to actively lobby for and you're probably lucky if you get one maybe two sit downs a season if you're any individual media organization but when you're talking about just other people within the game and ex-pros and maybe footballers lower down the league I think it has been slightly easier because everyone's just sitting around doing nothing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people, in, people in football are bored. They're like the rest of us. You know, they've been locked down for weeks and a lot of them, even if they're training an hour or two a day, the rest of the time is their own. They can't really go anywhere. So they're, they're not as opposed to sitting down and having a chat for an hour or, or so or, or doing an interview. So that aspect of it has been quite good, I think. Um, and we have been able to do some to do some good stuff in spite of the very strange circumstances.
0: Yeah, the obviously the uh, the next thing sort of these two words, sporting integrity. Um, I know you've <laughs> you've recently talked about that as well. Um, it seems to be coming from a lot of the teams towards the lower end of the league. Um, but obviously, uh, you know, you can understand why the, uh, um, the likes of you know even at Chelsea. Off his cheek and Pulisic have been able to come back from injury and Lampard's kind of got a fully fit squad for the first time um, since he since he's come to the club. Um, Harry Kane obviously um, will be back for for Spurs. We think. Um, who do you think has the has the biggest advantage? Um, it's probably from especially cl- you know clubs going for for a top four position. Um, Manchester United obviously as well will have Pogba back.
1: Yeah, it's it's a very difficult one to to predict. I'd say um, I'd say Tottenham will probably get the biggest uplift if Kane is ready to go, because he's the only number nine. Well, I mean, Jose Mourinho acts as if Troy Parrott doesn't exist. So uh, um, don't even he, start.
2: He, <laughs> so
1: he doesn't ha- he, he doesn't have a, a a walking talking number nine other than Harry Kane apparently. So if he <laughs> if he's back. Then Mourinho can actually play his his style of football um, to a to a functional degree, and that will obviously make Tottenham better than they they were. And of course, Hong Min Son has been able to do his military service without missing any games, which is yeah. um, hmm. quite a plus for them. So I, I think they'll they'll get a, a big uplift because they they really, when games stopped, I think Spurs were out of it, and they knew yeah. they were out of it. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: where now they might be alive again. United, uh, Cogba's such, such a weird one to, to predict because obviously he's one of the most talented players in the league, one of the most talented players in the world, but you just don't know where he stands in their plans, whether he's even going to play. Um, if he does and, he, and he's actually you know, mentally and physically in the right place, of course, he'll make them a hell of a lot better and they were already gaining some momentum with Brunei Fernandes and, and the, the balance they seem to have found in that team. Um, but as you say, Chelsea have got probably more squad options now than than they, than they had. And I think one player that people have maybe overlooked, who you mentioned, is, is Pulisic. He's, he was really, really good for Chelsea, particularly in that sort of stretch from October to November time. Uh, and the fact that he missed so much more time than originally expected really unbalanced Chelsea's attack and um, and he was he was very much the secondary goal threat after Tony Abraham and without him there was just too much pressure on Abraham and, and his, his own body started to break down so I think Chelsea being healthier healthy is a big one I still am confident that Chelsea will hold on to fourth. but you could also argue they've got the most to lose because if, if the season if the table had just been frozen and settled they would have already been in
0: yeah it, it, it's it's an interesting point that really isn't it? Do, you know, the feelings coming out of Chelsea at the minute. Do you think they're, you know, they would prefer to to get everything going again, one hundred percent, or or would they have been happy enough just to just to go points per game and like Liverpool, I'm sure, be be happy with the the final result? We
1: haven't really we haven't heard anything coming out of Chelsea to suggest they wanted the season to stop. Um, it, it, Everything that's conditioned Chelsea's approach has been first and foremost, how can we be the best possible uh, kind of community presence in the, in this public health crisis? So that's, that's conditioned everything they've done off the field. It's also conditioned everything that Lampard said, you know, only to, talking about only coming back when it's clear that, you know, the NHS is properly... Funded and supported, and there are enough tests to go around all this. And also the way he's dealing with Ngolo Kante's concerns, you know, that Chelsea are very sensitive with that. So that, that's that been more the priority for them rather than there hasn't been any sense of kind of a self serving, uh, let's stop the season now because
2: we're four. Yeah, I actually, and as Brenton told you before we came on, I'm a Liverpool fan, so people probably think I'd have something negative to say, but I've said it before. Um, I've been really impressed with Chelsea. Um, how they've handled everything um, to do with um, COVID-19. And, and they opened up uh, the hotels very early on to get involved. They didn't put anyone on furlough. Like You won't have heard one of our previous podcasts, but I had said how I was proud Liverpool hadn't done this. And about 14 hours later, they announced <laughs> they're putting people on furlough. And I had a meltdown, Liam, an actual <laughs> meltdown on our next podcast. So I was really impressed with Chelsea. But just on, not to gloss over it, because obviously it's been horrible this pandemic, but just on the football side of it, How have you found Lampard's first season up to date? Because there was a few prominent journalists that were sort of firing digs at him throughout the season, especially at the start of the season, didn't rate his managerial skills, didn't think he could handle himself at Chelsea and different things. I actually have been impressed by Lampard. I think he's been dealt some injury blows. When you lose Eden Hazard, your team's going to be weaker, regardless of who you've got around you. You know, He's one of the best players ever playing in the Premier League. And I think if it finishes and they finish the top four... Forget about the Bayern Munich game. Whatever happens there, they're flying. I think it's been a really good season for Lampard as his first year at Chelsea.
1: Yeah, I think there are two aspects to this. I think there's what he's done on the pitch and there's the way he's conducted himself as the kind of face of the club, which I think, as you know, having Jürgen clock in charge at Liverpool is an increasingly important part of being a manager of a, a club of that size. Yeah. Um, so on the pitch, yeah, I think he's done pretty well. all things considered, you lose your best player, your only world-class attacking player. And more than that, actually, the, your entire attacking system you know was Hazard. They didn't play Sarri's system going forward last year. They, they gave the ball to Hazard and hoped he would do something, and often he did. Yeah. Um, and so part of his challenge was not just replacing Hazard, but actually building an attacking system that was functional and had a kind of proper division of responsibilities with not any one person having to shoulder too much of the burden. And I think Chelsea, Chelsea have done that very well. Where their attack has fallen short is that you're depending on younger players whose decision-making is not always going to be perfect. Their execution is not going to be perfect. They're not always going to be super clinical. Um, and so they've had days where you look at the likes of Tammy Abraham, Mason Mount, Christian Pulisic, and think, wow, what could this team be in two, three years? And then you've had other days where it's just painfully obvious they're not quite there yet and they get nullified by... They lose to teams they have no business losing to at home. Yeah. Um, but those faults, I think, when you take a step back and look at it all in perspective, are pretty understandable. And, and Lampard has made the occasional tactical mistake, um, the occasional mismanagement, mis- mismanagement of games with substitutions, but nothing really that you wouldn't expect from... A guy in his second season of coaching, still finding his way, and I think broadly, uh, there's not a ton a ton you can fault him for tactically, um, or in terms of what he's done with the players. He's 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 brought in these youngsters, which Chelsea a lot of Chelsea fans have been calling for for years. He's given he's empowered them to grow in confidence and play well, and now Chelsea are in a really good squad position whereby. They can build around this academy core and potentially build quite a special team in the next two to three years, depending on how good these guys can become. The second aspect is off the pitch, you know, being the face of the club. And I think even before the public health crisis, and I think he said all the right things in the last couple of months about that Lampard hasn't really put a foot wrong um, in, in terms of handling, handling bad days, good days, always dealing with the media. You know, pretty, pretty even-handedly. Um, just yeah, just generally finding the right things to say. I think the only time he struck the wrong tone and a slightly problematic tone was right at the end of January when he was clearly frustrated that Chelsea hadn't signed anyone. Yeah. And there was one, there was one press conference on deadline day, which I remember, which had shades of Conte about it, where he, <laughs> his his frustration was bubbling below the surface, and he didn't. He didn't go as far as Conte did in terms of calling out the people above him, but he did say, "You know, this is the second window in a row where we'll we haven't strengthened." Um, and at that stage, you, you just thought, hmm, "How is this going to go?" But he that proved to be a kind of one-off. He, you know, he gathered himself. They signed Zieck a week later, and I think that helped. Yeah. But but generally speaking, he's he's represented the club well, and he's done a good job developing players and actually putting this squad in a really good position for the future and they're still on track for four
2: yeah I, I think as a as a non-Chelsea fan I, I think I don't say it for two or three years time Chelsea will challenge like they're, they're the team that I would say to people to watch out for and because they've been a little bit indifferent as you said they're a very young squad but when that all clicks and then you're adding Ziyech into that and maybe whoever else it mightn't be this summer because of the pandemic but in future transfer windows down the line they're going to be a very good team to watch. I think going forward, like
1: yeah, I think there's every reason to think that, um, and a lot of it, de- you know, a lot of it depends on what these guys' ceilings are. And I think Tammy Abraham's maybe the most intriguing case because he's already surprised a lot of people with how well he's done this year, and in particular how well he's rounded out his whole game. He's always been able to score goals, but now he's holding the ball up, linking play, doing the things you need from a to be a, a top striker at a top club. Um, and there are the others, you know, Pulisic, Mount, Reese James coming into the team. They've all shown flashes to suggest that they could be world-class. It, even if only two or three of them become truly world-class, that's something real to build on. Mm-hmm. Um, and Chelsea Chelsea have amassed, obviously this is all with the caveat of, we don't know exactly what consequences the Pandemic is going to have on the transfer market, but Chelsea have managed their finances in the last couple of windows to the point where they do have, relatively speaking, money to strengthen this squad reasonably significantly. And if they can do that smartly, they've had a bit of a mixed bag in terms of recruitment the last few years. Then they do have the opportunity to to, to make a leap. I think um, next year, I, I don't think they're they're expecting to challenge Liverpool and City next season because. The, Liverpool, I mean, this is Liverpool's greatest team since the 80s and City are a modern day powerhouse. They've both raised the bar for success at the top of the Premier League to an unprecedented height. You need 95 to 100 points now. You only you only used to need 85, 90. So, yeah. um, that, that's the level and I don't think Chelsea are capable of making that jump within a season. But when you're talking about two, three years, and if there's even a little bit of regression from Liverpool or City, then, yeah, they should be in the conversation again.
0: Yeah, that's a, a, a as a Chelsea fan, like, I'm, I'm excited with the the current squad, and obviously we have, you know, these young players signing, you know, longer contracts at the minute, um, obviously, Reese James, etc., and you mentioned Tommy Abraham there, is there any movement on, on uh, his contract? I know they're uh, a while back, they were they were still talking about it.
1: Not that I'm aware. I don't no. think there's been any, any movement. Um, I think part of the equation was that Abraham was waiting for this summer for two reasons. One, because he was expected to lead the line for England at Euro 2020, and there was a reasonable belief that that would boost his negotiating position. And two, I think he was waiting to see what Chelsea did in the transfer market. In terms of signing another striker, and we're still told that Chelsea are looking to sign another attacker this summer. Even though they've given Giroud another year, they're gonna they're gonna look to get rid of Ashuai, I think. Um, and we we it remains to be seen how that will affect or maybe complicate the Abraham talks. But I think the the key question is how good do Chelsea think Abraham can become because he's already as I said, done better, I think, than some people expected him to. The question is, is he on some kind of Harry Kane trajectory where he can be a proper you know, number one striker for the next five, 10 years and, and score 20 goals a season? Or will he fall a little bit short of that? And maybe you want someone to come in and compete or maybe play in, play in front of him. And that's a difficult decision for Chelsea to make because they don't even have a full season of Abraham at this level to look at. It's mm. such, such a small sample size. You know, they've played 29 Premier League games. He hasn't even played in all of those because he's had some injury problems. Um, so it, they don't have a lot to work with. But at the same time, if you, let the, if you let these negotiations drag on too far beyond this summer, then you get into 18 months out, a year and out, and you're into dangerous territory, the kind of territory that Arsenal have got themselves into too often with, with important players.
2: Liam, what was it like getting to follow and report um and i will enjoy this question uh, on Eden Hazard?
1: It was the best part of my job. watching him live every week was um spectacular um not just because of his talent but also because he was a natural entertainer and that was occasionally held against him because I think you know he because of his talent he always had. Comparisons to Messi and Ronaldo, and the question was constantly, "Can he reach that level?" And now that we were a few years down the line, not only can we see that that's an inherently unfair question to put point at anyone because Messi and Ronaldo are two of the best players of all time. Um, it's also it's it's also kind of damning hazard for the thing for what he's not, rather than appreciating what he is. Um, he. He's an ent- hes an entertainer first, really. To to paraphrase David Brent, um, <laughs> <laughs> and he doesn't have—he doesn't have really that killer instinct necessarily, or not constantly, not day in day out, not game after game that Messi and Ronaldo had. If he gets one goal, and he said this in interviews, you know, he—he's he, quite happy with getting a goal, one goal or one assist, and just making it obvious that he's the best player on the pitch rather than going for two, going for three, you know, trying to kill the other team constantly. He doesn't really do that. And, uh, and he's infuriated every manager he's had at Chelsea because he, <laughs> he, he trained he, a bit of a throwback in the sense that he only ever trained at like 20, 30%. Because he, he would just say, Oh yeah, I'm going to turn it on for the weekend. And then he did. So that there weren't, there wasn't much that managers could say to him and he he absolutely exasperated sarri last season because <laughs> that sarri's system was like it fundamentally required every single player to totally buy into the pressing to the tracking back to the positional play and hazard just did what he wanted and that that worked for chelsea because hazard was so good hazard doing what he wanted was chelsea's best plan because they didn't have much else particularly after Costa left Um, and so what you saw was Chelsea coach after Chelsea coach making allowances for him but it was always worth it with Hazard because he always came up when it mattered and if you look back on his career not just the spectacular goals but he he so often made an impact in the biggest games against the biggest teams and that culminates in the Europa League final in Baku where you know I, i I. took me three flights to get there, three flights back, but it was worth it with the um, Hazard's performance in that game because he did what some of the greatest players do, which is write their own endings. Um, he was determined not to lose that game, determined to win it, and he did single-handedly win it for Chelsea in the
2: second half. He was um, not the one player, but he was the player in the league that I feared the most come downfield. Yeah, uh, you know. He
1: always played really well at Anfield. School always
2: like I don't know I don't know what his problem was. He always turned it on against us and destroyed us. And no matter who we had trying to mark and we're trying to look after him, they just couldn't get near him. Like his goal was it last this last season where he cuts inside, smashes it like that was absolutely outstanding. And you knew as as soon as he got the ball, ah well, it's game over. He was you know what was going to happen. He was such a special talent. Do you think he will get to succeed at Real Madrid?
1: Talent-wise, yeah, there's no doubt. Um, I always thought with Hazard that he would be even better with better players around him, and his stats would be even better. He didn't always have the stats that marked him out as one of the best players in the world. You know, he never hit 20 goals for Chelsea in the Premier League. um, Didn't always have an, an amazing number of assists. But part of that was because he didn't have enough talent around him and he was regularly so much the focus of opposition defences um, that often he would create space for his teammates just by being there because he would dominate the attention of, of, of a defence. Whereas at Real Madrid, he's got world-class players all around him. So I think when if he gets to play in that team and gets to settle in that team, um, he will do really, really well. And he is a big game player. And he, mm-hmm. he, the thing is, he, do, he doesn't feel pressure really he knows how he knows how good he is um but in in like a charmingly cocky way you know he's not abrasively cocky um but he yeah he he thrives on it and the one thing that i i worried about him when he did go um was that madrid is is a proper celebrity sort of goldfish bowl it is the biggest goldfish bowl in football and it's nothing like Chelsea in that respect. Like Hazard really liked living in Cobham. Um, he really liked being a superstar footballer, but also having the ability to be relatively anonymous day-to-day, just go about his family life um, and not have the constant attention. And also, if he had you know, run a bad form at Chelsea, he generally got a pass because the, the club was so grateful, You know, fans were so grateful to have him. That doesn't happen at Real Madrid. They don't give those allowances to anyone. I mean, they booed Ronaldo about 700 goals into his career. <laughs> so so um, they'll, they'll boo and whistle anyone. And um, so that's, what, that's the fear I had about Hazard, is that the, the, the criticism could be like unlike anything that he's experienced in his career before. And obviously he's had a bad start because after seven years of being incredibly durable at Chelsea... He he barely missed a game, yeah. um, and he and he often played through injuries. Uh, he's he's had a he's basically not been able to stay on the pitch. And at the moment, it looks like Chelsea sold him at the right time. But I think if he can stay healthy, um, he he will show just how good he is for Real Madrid.
0: Well, what was he like to deal with? Just Liam, just sort of as a person, kind of off the off the pitch.
1: He was a he was a pleasure. Um, he's unfailingly friendly approachable didn't have a superstar aura beyond just like i say that kind of charming cockiness like he'd often walk past you in the mix zone and yeah i'll speak to him and even if he if he turns you down which you know all players do from time to time it would be with like a wink and a you know a, a friendly smirk he wouldn't he wouldn't blank you if you were interviewing him if there was a huddle of us around him in a mix zone I never never saw him. No comment. A question. Um, he the only times he ever really tried to dodge questions um, were when he was doing it really to try and manage his relationship with the fans because it was very obvious that he wanted to join Real Madrid. It was very it was very obvious that he in it was very obvious last season that he was going to join Real Madrid, but he didn't want to have to say it in every interview because he he realised that that would annoy people, um, and so that. When he when he when he did dodge things, you understood why because he you know he was doing it for the right reasons. Um, But he he would most on most occasions he he would give an honest answer or he would he would give you an answer you could run with. He was quite playful as well. He enjoyed having a bit of fun with journalists, even like sort of yeah taking the nick out of um, journalists if they were asking him questions about his future too much. But. uh, very giving with his time as well you know you, you you can talk to players sometimes and they'll be sort of inching away from you even as they're finishing a quote because they're they're desperate to get away he wasn't like that I, I i haven't seen many superstar footballers who who act like that who are just that kind of down to earth and i think part of that was just he didn't he doesn't live really a superstar life off the pitch he's just a he's a family guy lives a quiet life he's all about football And he just enjoys being really, really good at it. (laughs)
2: Yeah, ridiculously good good at it.
0: I'm glad I can sort of keep him on that pedestal. Then you know, you didn't tell me anything too bad about him there, so he'll continue to stay up there. He
1: was a he was a great ambassador for Chelsea. I think the whole time he was at the club, on and off the pitch. Who,
2: who? Um, sorry, who? Who was the? Who was the easiest manager? Because the. You Chelsea have had some managers that like you wouldn't want to annoy. Um, you know, so who was the easiest one? Uh who's even maybe even more interesting, who was the most difficult one sometimes to get an answer out of? Um It's uh oh,
1: that, that, that's a slightly tricky one. I mean, one of the one of the ones that was quite easy to get on with that you wouldn't think it was Conte, because you'd think he was a very intimidating figure. But yeah. he was very fr- yeah. he was very he was very friendly with the media um he he made an effort to to say hi to us to to try and build some sort of you know he didn't he didn't have like you know special relationships with any journalists but he he did he did put in an effort to try and be cordial with all of us um both years he was there he took us for a drink down the pub at christmas nice uh, just to, for so i mean it, we call it a chat it was basically us just firing a load of questions at him um, <laughs> because no one no one wants to hear us talk. We want to hear his stories. Um, yeah. But it was, yeah. So th- he he was good to deal with generally. Um, it just became, the press conferences themselves became quite tedious towards the end because it was so obvious that that was broken between him and the board and, and, and that he wanted to get away. Um, a different one, kind of the opposite of that in a lot of ways was Sarri in that he was quite good in press conferences in that he was, honest even when it didn't benefit him to be honest he'd just tell you whatever was on his mind um like i remember him saying he didn't watch callum hudson and doy's england debut yeah just lying, just lying yeah. mauricio <laughs> you know he it's so easy but he was incapable of it he just he would um he, he would give he would tell you exactly what he was thinking at all times which was great for us but off camera he he didn't want to spend any more time with media than he absolutely had to Mm. um and there was always that constant tension that always that constant feeling that he wanted to get away and um not just with media actually but kind of anything that wasn't involved in the core responsibility of coaching the team he just wasn't interested in had no time for Uh, and i think that was felt throughout the club um but yeah i think uh so you said difficult to to cover or difficult to get an answer out of
2: just well either or like what were you were you um working when Carlo Ancelotti was no no cuz sadly not like I love, like and I, like again he's manager of Everton but I absolutely adore Carlo Ancelotti I think he is just brilliant for football like he so the way his, his attitude to things and how he gets on so I was, I was interested in that but um you're obviously there for Mourinho then his second stint
1: kind of tail end my second week at ESPN was uh the week he got sacked
2: when it all went wrong <laughs> all right
1: okay yeah.
2: all right okay So
1: I, I kind of watched um I, I covered I, I did a few Mourinho press conferences when I was at goal before that um and then I watched the Mourinho unraveling from kind of my my un- my short unemployment gap between those two jobs so I was thinking I probably should be writing about this but instead I was just <laughs> watching him torching his uh, torching his own title winning legacy um but yeah Mourinho the Mourinho press conferences I've been in he's he's the absolute king of that environment because when he when he wants to drop a line there's there's still no one better at coming up with a sound sound soundbite that just dominates the next two days news he could also be incredibly tedious um because if he came in in a bad mood bad mood he, he would just shut everything down with one or two word answers, but he, he had the ability to be, you know, to, to completely make your story. If, even if he said nothing, you know, the story would be Mourinho in a bad mood. And why is that? So, yeah, he, he's still like the, as, as a uh, Guardiola called him, El Puto Amo, of the, of the press conference. He's, he's still very much that. And that was cemented for me when he came back under Conte and, and Rolled out the Judas is number one, still number one. Quote. I thought, yeah, he's he still got that. He may have lost a lot of other things, but he's still got that.
2: <laughs> that was actually, I really enjoyed that from afar. Those two going back and forward at each other, it was pretty uh, hilarious at times. Like just it, seeing the two of got,
1: them, it got seriously nasty.
2: Yeah, I
1: mean they they genuinely did not like each other, um, <laughs> and they still they still don't. It was some of the things they said were were pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, there was some real ill feeling behind it. <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> the, the obviously the the real thing I want to know um is kind of about the the transfer window when whenever that will be. Um, I know that I've reading Simon Johnson's article there, um, and he was saying that uh, you know all things coming out at the minute would suggest that Abramovich is kind of ready to invest again, um, in the summer. Um, the the interesting thing that I know we were talking about the the young players there um, before and and Tommy Abraham maybe waiting to to sign the new contract is that important do you think for Lampard to strike a balance between obviously he wants to strengthen with world class players but also keep that core of of academy players that you were talking about you know it's going to be quite difficult to do that if the likes of Tommy Abraham isn't going to stick around if if Chelsea go for a, another number nine.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely crucial. I think it's the biggest challenge that Lampard has in terms of the long-term building of this team. He's done, he's done the first phase, which in some ways was the, the one that most people thought was the most difficult, which is actually giving these young guys a chance in the first place. Um, and he's allowed them to establish themselves. And now they're at the point where they are, you know, for at least squad members and several of them are starters regularly on merit. Um, so, the challenge now, which is very, not easy to do at all, is to, as you say, find a balance between strengthening the team. And Chelsea have a lot of good players; they just don't have a lot of really great ones. Um, so, it you have to sign really good players to improve this squad, but you also have to be careful not to block their development. And we've already heard we've already heard noises, you know, over the last six. Six to twelve months of chelsea Chelsea's recruitment network scouting some of some of the best young players in Europe, um but then you know Scott McLaughlin ringing up ringing up agents and saying, well no actually- actually Frank likes the kid that's coming through so it Chelsea's recruitment is being manager led, and the signs already are that Lampard has that balance in mind, so they're not going to go out and sign a brilliant young full, you know, a brilliant young right back when they've got Rhys James, they're they're just not going to do that. Um, And you look at Chelsea's first team recruitment policy anyway, it tends to be players between the ages of about 23, 28, you know, no older than that. ZF is going to be 27 when he kicks a ball in the Premier League. So he's on the older end of that scale, but most of the players they sign. Will be with a view to how they can improve at Stamford Bridge and actually increase their value. Um, so you you don't want to sign players who are on the same time frame as your best young players and also play yeah. the same positions. So that's why we're looking at the they're gonna they're gonna go hard for a left back. They really like Ben Chilwell. He's the number one choice. He fits the age profile, but he's not blocking a youngster. Um. And they want another attacker so that the, the attacker is going to be the bigger test, as you say, of, of making that balance and keeping someone like Tammy Abraham invested and feeling like he's central to the club's plans.
0: Yeah, does obviously, you know, recently Ben Chilwell has been all I've been seeing and hearing about. Um, does that mean that Alonso and Emerson will, will likely go or one or the other, do you think?
1: I wouldn't be surprised if both go. Okay. Uh, I wouldn't be; it wouldn't shock me, because I don't think either of them. It's become pretty clear over the course of the season that neither of them are in Lampard's long-term plans as as key key players. Um, it's I think it's very likely at least one of them will go. Uh, I, I I I heard when Ian Matson, Chelsea's young Dutch left back, when he mm. signed his new contract a couple of months ago. Part of his motivation for, for doing that was not just an increased confidence in, in opportunities in the first team, but also because he was hoping to or well, he'd set himself the target of maybe being the backup to the left back that comes in. So okay. in his in his from his perspective, you know, the noises around Chelsea already were that Emerson and Alonso could both leave. It it all depends on the market though. That's the thing. Chelsea don't sell low. Marina Sky doesn't do that. Mm. So there will have to be offers for Alonso and Emerson that make sense. And if they can get good deals for both of them, then it wouldn't surprise me to see both them go. But I think it's very likely they'll they'll probably offload one of them.
2: Obviously, you touched on a left back, and as Brenton, he'll be delighted here. Ben Chilwin's name being mentioned again, and a forward. Um, Billy Gilmore, is there? Is he going to be like, is, is his ceiling just, you can't predict it yet? Because, I mean, he has to apologize to Fabinho first for absolutely torturing him in that FA Cup game, which I still can't get over. Um, Do you think his ceiling is just massive now? It's or it's, it's on. We, we can't sort of put a limit on it yet because of some of his performances. Um, are we going to see a lot of Billy Gilmore when when football comes back, do you think?
1: I think I think we will, yeah, I think we will see a, see a bit of him. I mean, the, the dynamic has changed slightly because Chelsea have pretty much all their midfielders fit now, yeah. although Jorginho will still be suspended um, <laughs> whenever yeah, football yeah. comes back. Yeah. This is now officially the longest suspension in football history. <laughs> um, but yeah, but Gilmore is special. He, he, is, he is special, and, and I'd thought that about him when I was watching him in Chelsea's youth teams, but you never know because you're watching them against other kids. And yeah. I've, see, I've seen enough academy football at this point to know that you just can't, you can't project what it's like to play against men. You don't know how they're going to react physically, but also mentally to that challenge, that intensity. And for him to come into that Liverpool game against... All right, it wasn't the strongest Liverpool team, but the system is still the same. You know, the way a clock team presses... Is one of the biggest challenges you will face, particularly in that position of such responsibility of starting the possession from the base of midfield. And for a player like him to come into a game of that intensity and just have ice in his veins and and make the right decision every single time. And he looked like he'd been, he'd been playing there all his, all his life. Um, That's when you look at it and think, yeah, this guy is, is really special. And, um, Lampard's been seeing it every day in training. You know that's why it was a little bit of a surprise when um, when he when they pushed up on the club's website during I think it was the March inter- No, uh, an earlier international break I think or like oh, it was the during the February break actually. Um, the winter was, break. Yeah, yeah, I pretended that, that I'm not used to that existing, so that's why <laughs> I, I stumbled over it. But yeah, it was during the February break. Chelsea confirmed that Lampard had elevated him full time to the to the first team squad and he'd moved into the first team building. So that was maybe slightly surprising. But he's you know, Lampard has has clearly got a massive amount of faith in him. And whenever you see Lampard asked about him in interviews, he talks about him like a proud dad. Particularly because I think he's a he's a midfielder and Lampard really respects he has a particular affinity to the skills that Gilmore has. Um, but just the kind of game intelligence, uh, the, the intangibles. It's harder to coach. You know, he's got the technique, but it's more the, the game intelligence and the ability to read the game and make those decisions so quickly that you've kind of either got or you haven't. And um, and he's already got them to an elite level. I think he he will play. I don't I don't expect him to go on loan ahead of next season either. I think he's going to be part of Lampard's plans. And he's going to have a very long career at Chelsea.
0: Yeah, he's he's so exciting. I was actually uh, at the Everton game, uh, the four 0 and I think he got man on the match uh, as well in that game. He was it was so good to see him live, as you say. He had, you know, he gave little looks before the ball came to him, so he you know he w- he was aware of everything going around him. Um, but that I, I know you said about the the midfielders all being fit now. Does that present an, a, a sort of a hurdle to get over for for loftus cheek I know he's been obviously he's been one of the most unlucky players in, in Chelsea's history in terms of injuries and timings of his loans and things like that, but I think everyone would like to see him get a a run in the first team, but is that a bit of an overcrowded area right now?
1: It is overcrowded um I feel tremendously sorry for loftus cheek he's he's one of yeah. the loveliest guys um that that you could meet i interviewed him actually about a week before he ruptured his achilles for espn um and we were planning to run the write-up of that interview ahead of the europa league final about how much it was all about how much he was uh, i might i might have jinxed him i don't know i really hope (laughs) i didn't um we ended up never running that interview in written form because of what happened but he 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 was really breaking through at that point. He was finally becoming the player that people, not just at Chelsea, but throughout academy level of, of English football, believed he could become a really sort of special, transcendent midfielder with a unique set of skills. Um, he he was really blossoming under Sarri and, and he'd finally earned Sarri's trust. And I think from about February to to July, he was Chelsea's second-best player after Hazard. Um, so it was a, a massive shame. I know Lampard is really um, w- was really gutted not to be, be able to pick him basically for his entire first season. Um, yeah. The one good thing about this situation, it the midfield is overcrowded, but the one good thing about this situation for Loftus-Cheek is it kind of levels the playing field. This is yeah. pre-season for everyone now.
2: Mm.
1: But before... You know, Loftus Cheek has been fully fit for. He was probably fully fit for about a month before the shutdown, but he was nowhere near match sharpness, and that's why Chelsea were being so careful with him. Whereas now, no one's got match sharpness, so he has got more of an equal opportunity to earn a place in the team. And I think, given enough time, um, I think he he can earn a place in his team in in the team more. The 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 immediate priority I think for him this season is just to get some minutes on the pitch and look like the play begin to look like he hit the player he was. This is clearly now a rehab season, you know. Just make sure you're 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 fully right again, phys- mentally as well as physically. Does he trust his body fully? Because he's had a lot of problems even before this. Um, but if he can start to look like the player he was last year, then you have. Well, it's probably it's not going to be the summer now, but then you have an off season break, and you can really attack next season, um, and and try to regain some of that momentum that was lost. But I think he he can still be that player. He he began to show under on the, on the under He's just he's had to be so patient. I don't know how he's been so patient.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. His mentality must be off the roof there. It'd be, be so tough to. Um, get that injury, just as you were saying Like, and Brenton's a massive fan of Loftus Cheek, so if um, that happened and then missed that final, we thought we he, he would have made him, I know Chelsea won it anyway, but they could have won it by two more goals, which would have been funny for our other podcaster, Johnny, who's an Arsenal fan, but to have that and then Lampard come in and this new Chelsea and sit back and have to watch from the side so I, as a neutral, hope he comes back and, and regains some of that form because I'm sure you as an England fan it will be delighted to see him Absolutely blossoming because that'll only add the England strength, which like at the minute England's young team is one of the best in Europe. Anyway, to watch and definitely exciting if you're an English fan. Um dam sorry, what's been the the greatest game you've covered um, with Chelsea? What's been your if you could, if I could transport you back to it right now, where would you go? Uh,
1: there are a few contenders. Not Baku. Would say <laughs> <laughs> Baku was a. Uh, was interesting in its way it was so surreal that whole experience um yeah that, that was the worst journey uh, yeah the, the best game the best Chelsea game I've covered there's probably three main contenders the 4-4 at home to Ajax this year was absolutely bonkers <laughs> the most the most bonkers game I've ever I've, the most bonkers Chelsea game I've ever covered you know two red cards in a minute absolutely I've never seen that before um the Battle of the Bridge, away uh, home to Spurs, yes, just again such a mad game. Mark Klattenberg spent, spent ninety plus minutes playing advantage in that game, <laughs> and he gave a single free kick. He was determined not to send anyone off, and there were atrocious challenges on both sides um, yeah. and uh, yeah, that was just an amazing game, and obviously a very a hugely consequential one. One of the games I enjoyed covering the most uh, which wasn't. A high-scoring draw was Chelsea away at City in the Conte season when they won three-one, mm-hmm. and that was the day that Chelsea really started to believe. It was in the midst of that thirteen-game win streak; they really started to believe at that point that they were going to win the league, and you could feel that on the day. Um, and it was such a high-quality game from both teams, like the the level of tactical intensity, physical intensity, and technical quality was so good um, and you really felt that okay City weren't quite at the peak of their powers but you could see they were really coming um, and you could see that Chelsea were absolutely flying under Conte and they were so so clinical that day it was made one of Costa's best performances and um, yeah all around as a team they, they, were, they were excellent.
0: Sort of developing on that um who who would be the best sort of player that you've seen play against Chelsea, do you think?
1: Oh, uh, well, yeah, actually, that's quite easy because um, in Conte's second season, uh, Messi absolutely destroyed them at the new camp. And I would say, <laughs> I've, been, I've been fortunate enough. I've been fortunate enough to, to see Messi a few times. And he's, I think I've seen him four times. He's scored in three of those games, but that was the one proper signature Messi performance, and I was really privileged to, to get to see a Messi, uh, a signature Messi performance in the flesh. And Barcelona weren't even very good in that game, but he he just decided it. You know, Chelsea actually played really well and lost three nil um, because they outplayed Barcelona for long stretches, but they gave the ball away I think three times, and, and Messi scored twice and set up one for Eastman. And then, with like a, a ridiculous run past three players and then a pass that no one else could see.
2: Um, yeah, he, uh, he's a genius. So, yeah, that, he's- Do, well, You mentioned Costa there and it was announced today that he's, he's... I don't know what he's been doing with his tax, but God knows what he's been at. But um, what was he like, just sort of quick... And we don't want to hold you back for too much longer. I know Brenton has more pressing questions. And what was he like, the cover, because... I would have loved to have seen him and Suarez play at Liverpool. I don't know how much we would have won, but we would have fought everyone. Like I mean we would have just everyone would have hated us and it would have been perfect. What was he like the cover as a reporter?
1: I think I, I think they both would have sus- been suspended for half the season each. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Never actually played together because one was suspended for the first half and one was suspended for <laughs> the second half. Yeah, probably.
1: Yeah. Costa was a glorious maniac at Chelsea. <laughs> It, the most the most fun player, the most entertaining player to cover just because he was so absolutely back, you know, completely mental. Um, but he, I think he got a rough, I actually do think he got a rough ride when he first arrived at Chelsea because he arrived the summer that Suarez left and there was a clear, there was a clear appetite in the English media because of the type of player that Costa was to recast him as the new Suarez. Mm. And to be fair, Nothing that, nothing that Costa did in England was as bad as the worst things that Suarez did. He was, he was much more of like the Robbie Savage of strikers. He was like a low level, a low-level WWE agitator. Like, you know, he, 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 you know he'd like pinch you and like jab you in the ribs and things like that. He, he only got sent off once. He got sent off once in the FA Cup against Everton, and that was actually quite a harsh red card. Um, he he got booked a lot and he got retrospectively banned a few times but he didn't get sent off Um, so yeah he was he was more of a provocateur than anything which was quite entertaining to watch and probably yeah the the funniest moments covering Costa were like your those those sort of mid-tier Premier League away games Uh, Stoke immediately comes to mind where he's just He's just standing in the middle of the center, like in the center circle, chest puffed out like a WWE wrestler, and the entire crowd is just pouring vitriol on him from all sides. And he's just standing there, absolutely reveling in it. He loved it, and it was it was really funny to see because you don't get many players that are like that. Um, the thing that he was also frustrating at times because he would get too distracted by that stuff, mm. and he and he'd actually become a liability to his own team at times. Um, and also, the last six months of his Chelsea career were a proper damp squib because he, he he was agitating to leave, fell out with Conte, um, and then basically phoned it in for the second half of the season. I actually thought he was really stupid to do that because for the first half of the season, he was the best player in England. Yeah, and he, he was he was undeniably the best player in the Premier League, and he was winning the league for Chelsea and almost on his own. And then he if he if he'd actually finished that season the way he started it it would it would have been one of the best premier league seasons by anyone mm. and instead he he found it in and i think that that kind of stained his his legacy in england but he was super fun to to cover my biggest regret about him is that he didn't want to speak in in english ever so <sighs> i i had i had colleagues at the time at espn brazil who interviewed him and everything he said was gold oh, he,
0: so frustrating for you
1: everything he said was gold but he refused to speak english and he refused to properly really learn english so um yeah it was fr- that that was frustrating but he was relentlessly entertaining
2: i loved when he played against arsenal and he used to torture i tortured them um, <laughs> what do you call the center back he's now at gabriel it gabriel oh that was amazing that was amazing i loved that
1: yeah i mean and he and it looked for a little while like he was um he was like properly embracing the role of Drogba's heir, like Mm. Arsenal's tormentor in chief. That's a key requirement of the role. If you're going to be a proper Drogba successor, you have to completely destroy Arsenal. I can't play
0: Abraham hasn't gone too badly without this. No, he's
1: he's made, he's made a good start. He scored a winner at the Emirates and then celebrated with the Drogba, the classic Drogba, pump your arms out and run to the corner flag. So yeah, that's a promising start.
0: Yeah. Great moment. Um, the, the one sort of other, and as Phil says, we don't want to hold you back too long, but the one other big thing that I wanted to touch on was um, was the new broadcast sort of setup up and, and what that's going to look like. I know um, I think it was Adam Crafton recently there in the week talked about um, the Sky have sort of delayed the, the rebate um, for the clubs to, for, for I think it's until 2021-2022 season. So kind of I think they maybe want a bit more out of their out of their broadcast and, and they, they sort of will, will maybe want players and, and managers mostly managers to maybe talk at half time things like that have you have you heard any any more on the development of this obviously there's going to be no fans so they'll they'll maybe need something to add to the broadcast
1: yeah I mean I don't I don't know much more beyond Adam's fantastic story which has an awful lot of um, great detail in it but yeah, there, there does seem to be a suggestion that the broadcasters were pushing for a lot more in terms of access at half time and in the tunnel and in the dressing rooms and things like that. And there's no way the clubs will do that. They're so secretive. Yeah. And they don't and fundamentally I think they don't trust their own players and staff not to do something that's a massive problem. <laughs> you know, there's a there's a reason why they resisted miking up refs for so long because they couldn't trust what players were saying to them. So that that's kind of the culture within English football I don't think i, I don't blame broadcasters for trying because yeah. you should ask the question it's a fantastic thing if you're able to get it through but um yeah i, I don't don't see that ever really happening um but clearly there there's gonna be a lot more of that kind of push and pull because the broadcasters have already made what they feel well they've already taken a big blow because they're not gonna make yeah. even if all these games are honored. The broadcasters are still going to come out at a negative because they've had to reschedule games. They've had two, three months with nothing. I'm sure Sky and BT have been losing money hand over fist in yeah. these last couple of months, Um and I doubt they're going to make it back with these kind of ghost games that we've got now. So it's it's just making the best of a of, of a bad situation, really. Um The one thing I I don't want to see is fake noise and stadiums. And I really don't want to. Tottenham are already doing that, are they not? (laughs) Depending on which conspiracy theories you believe, yeah, they they might be. um, No, it it would just be, I think it would only make a jarring experience more jarring because you're you're watching behind closed doors and and it's going to be weird for people. We've already seen with the Bundesliga games that it's, it's a bit weird. The good thing about it is you can actually try and hear what instructions players are shouting to each other and coaches are shouting, which is quite interesting. But it's only going to it's only going to get much worse, and I think you're going to alienate a lot of fans if you if you try and do that. Yeah,
0: I I think that that pretty much sums up. That just I want to touch on a a couple of um, quick sort of transfer reports, just to mostly to wind fill up, really. But um, thank you. The other guy we usually have on is, as we've said, uh, Johnny is an Arsenal fan. So um, first of all, is there any truth in the in the uh, Aubameyang uh, rumor um, that has been circling about Chelsea? And then obviously um, Werner as well has been talked about. I know um, Liverpool are our number one target there, but um, any truth in Chelsea looking at at those two? Well, I've actually
1: just been writing about Aubameyang. Um,
0: oh,
2: all right,
1: not not in terms of. You know, reporting information, just talking about whether he makes sense as a Chelsea target. Um, but uh, I don't, I don't get the sense of anything substantive in Chelsea looking at Abayang right now. But there's, there's plenty of time for that to change. I think the Yang situation is very fluid because Arsenal haven't offered him a new contract yet. There's suggestions that Arteta's going to talk to him personally to try and convince him to sign a new deal. Um, I'd imagine that one won't get resolved or one way or another until we're in the transfer window itself, because then once the games are done, I'm sure that will be the moment where he makes a decision on his future. And if he's gonna make a play to leave, that's when he'll do it. Um Chelsea don't typically sign players of his age and his wage, but he is a genuinely elite goalscorer.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um and Chelsea are also in a position where they can react to opportunities as they arise. So I wouldn't rule anything out because they do need a forward and he is a great one. Um, as for Werner, he makes a lot more sense if you look at the general profile of the players Chelsea go for. Yeah, He can, he can play through the middle, he can play wide. He He's basically a younger Dries Mertens and Lampard absolutely loved Dries Mertens and yeah. really wanted to sign him in January. Um, so it's clear that that type of player is, is something that appeals to Lampard. The thing with Werner is he wants to join Liverpool. If he goes anywhere, he wants to join Liverpool. Um, the problem, the problem, the problem with that is that Liverpool have the best front three in world football and they're all at their peak. So who, who do you take out? Who, who who goes to make room for, for him and why would he go there to be, you know, 12th man? Um, so, if, if Chelsea can change Werner's mind and maybe change his perspective on, on going somewhere else in the Premier League other than Liverpool, then that one could be could be a live one. But for the moment, it looks like Liverpool is his top
0: choice. Ah oh, well. <laughs> Worth <with> a try. <laughs> um, listen, I think that'll do us, Liam. Thank you so much again for coming on. It's been great. I'm sure Phil has enjoyed it as much as I have. Yeah, um, it's been brilliant. So you're welcome back anytime, time. Um, Phil. Thanks, no guys. Pleasure. Phil, thank you as well for joining. Um, no worries. I just um, before thanks. we
2: go, um, Liam, your podcast name on the Athletic Straight Outta Column is the greatest podcast name I've come across. <laughs> and I heard that you, you thought of it. So well yeah. done, you, because it's class. I absolutely love it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I had it, had it in my head for about a year or two before... I started working for the athletic, but no one had come to me and asked if I wanted to do a Chelsea specific podcast of my own. So uh when the athletic said we wanna we wanna start one, that was the it was the only we had a brainstorming session that consisted of one name <laughs> essentially. It was the first one suggested and it was the first one green lit. But
0: yeah. yeah I, I I'm
1: not I'm not I don't have a lot of great ideas, but I have my moments.
0: <laughs> Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, Listen, thank you very much again. Um, Thanks, everybody, for listening. We will catch you on the next one.